Welcome to Mod Pod, Museum of Dance podcast, where we explore why we dance. I'm Hilary Palanza, your host. Born and raised in Japan and a resident of New York since 1976, Eiko Atake is a movement-based interdisciplinary artist. After working for more than 40 years as Eiko and Koma, she now performs as a soloist and directs her own projects, collaborating with a diverse range of artists. Eiko, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time to be with us today on Museum of Dance podcast. It is such an honor to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Eiko, you have worked for more than 40 years with Koma, presenting your work all over the world. Before we launch into your solo performance and teaching career, can you tell us a little bit about how you discovered movement or dance and how you and Koma started your work together? I am not a dancer-dancer person, so I really approached dance as almost a surprise. It's a betrayal to myself because I was a bookworm. <laughs> and I was also a very politicized young teenager. I was reading lots of literature, also to a political science activism books. And we were also on the street, lots of demonstration. This is back in the end of the 60s to the early 70s. Yes. The political activism has gone to the place or a sectism of the small differences, different sects, which was problematic at the point. Mm-hmm. And I really got quite uh, lost. And being lost was the beginning of me trying to find out what, what else or where do I go with being lost. Mm-hmm. And then, as often the young people who are lost to do, I was wandering on the street, you know, <laughs> trying to find both, you know, old friends and new friends, but often alone. And it is one of those alone moments I happened to see one of my first dance teachers' uh, concert, and I didn't like it. Mm. But there's something about that that challenged me to kind of poke, poke into it. It was completely like happenstance. It was not my clearly defined moment of joy to dance, not at all. Mm-hmm. It was more of my journalistic interest. What do those people do? Why do they do that? How do they do that? So I was very much an outsider coming into kind of poke around. And then that part ended very quickly. Then I also studied with second teacher, Kazuo Ono, and that lasted longer. But again, we cut it short enough so that we are never disciples. We are not even good students at all. So it was just like, like coming in, sniffing around, leaving was our pattern of studying. It was never meant to be I and Koma want to become dancers. It was something that was giving us the base of thinking. Maybe we strived to, to, to be with a body and reading books and theories. Give a little distance to what we had been doing. Right. We had no idea we ended up <laughs> in this dance field. Um, this is very strange, even by looking back. Yes, absolutely. It's so interesting to hear that perspective of your entry point into dance and that it came from this point of activism and even journalistic perspective. Yeah. And a curious in, you know, instinct to just like sniffing around. Yes, I love that term, sniffing around. Yeah. This is good. <laughs> and that lasted us also. We left Japan very quickly and we studied in Germany and Amsterdam. And then before we came to America. Uh, so this idea about just looking around a little bit and kind of like observe, I think that that really was our first 10 years. Yes, that makes so much sense in the way that your work is displayed to observe and understand and, and reflect. 
you mentioned seeing a dance performance you just didn't like. Could you put your finger on what it was specifically that challenged you? What I said is I didn't hate it. I didn't dislike it. But I just wanted to say it that way because otherwise the impression is, oh, I was so moved, therefore I go to the teacher. I see, yeah. It wasn't like this. I saw something that was like very avant-garde, you know, very underground, uh, very different movement than what is considered as dance. Yes. And to dance itself, what is considered dance, I wasn't interested in. So just seeing the different form was interested. Interesting, interesting. Also, yes. it was not those avant-garde theater, which uses words. Yeah. So I was attracted to this new thing that wasn't using words because I was so tired. I was always writing. There was no question that I was to become a writer. When there are so many young people who want to be a writer, and then what do we write about? Right. And that was one of the many, many people like that, that I wanted to be a writer, but I felt I don't have anything important to write. Mm. So to me, it's like just sniffing those dancers or the new art forms is a way to kind of think about, mm, maybe it doesn't always have to be the words. Mm. Maybe it's barking. Maybe it's restraining. Maybe it's sighing, sigh, sigh, mm. or scream. Mm. Or maybe now of that. Maybe we don't need a vocal cord to think that. So that, that was just a trial period. So interesting to think about how that was revelatory to you in its own way and finding movement and its vocabulary, so to speak, or not vocabulary. <laughs> and how you were able to use that as an artist. Do you mind talking a little bit, Eiko, about your, um, this is such a common question, I think, for those in the world of dance, and it can be such a plain question, but I feel it's important to share for those who don't have the entry points into dance, how you and Koma created your works together in the early days. Just, you don't have to tell us each piece, of course, but how you approached working together as as co-artists. So we met in our first teacher's studio, and his name was Hijikata. Mm-hmm. And he was giving us free class. We were living in his house, many small rooms to sleep in. And we would learn the choreography because he had his own theater show. Of course. So Kuma was already in the piece, even though he was only there for three months. And I just came in. And the way we learned it is I was put on a stage only one week later. <laughs> do this, do this, do this. Meanwhile, we also learned how to put a cabaret show. So there'd be a like, full orchestra cabaret, and he would send his students you know, to, to perform in cabaret as an entertainment. And so many of his students did that, including myself and Koma. So Koma and I were partners in this cabaret show. Again, we only did it like two months. Yes. But two months was enough for us to learn, oh, we can make money that way. I see. So that, then we left. <laughs> and we did our own cabaret show. So we, did, we were frustrated, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was okay because we are making money. Right. But a huge amount of the money. We were very unexperienced. Mm-hmm. But that frustration of having a cabaret show made us wanting to create our own piece. Yeah. So our first piece was created in Tokyo before we left Japan, and we performed it in a campus where Koma was a student. He, you know, he 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 dropped out of the university, but we still had a familiarity of that campus. So we performed our first piece there. It was kind of chaotic. You know, it was really mere way for us to present ourselves in a very like not caring the audience who their audience is. We just wanted to create our own our own time and place. Just to, to kind of know like what we are seeking for. And then so after that we left Japan to Europe. So Eko, in this process of the the performance piece through a school or an academic institution, did you feel like there was freedom to just make your own decisions? 
many of the campus have been kind of closed down anyway, you know, for different reasons. So we're just using the campus as a space because we're familiar with the space. So it's completely a guerrilla performance. (laughs) (laughs) We actually did something like, uh, I I actually feel a little uh, um, embarrassed even to speak about. For example, I got collected, collected lots of Sprite and the Coca-Cola cans, and we painted all the cans white, you know, empty cans, right, after people drink. And we you know, painted those things white, and we went to the top of the building, and we saw <laughs> those white cans, hundreds, hundreds of them, throwing down. Uh, to the audience, who is like, literally just gathered below. Yes. It's not very safe things to do, we just wanted to create some event that is guerrilla, but at the same time, it occupied certain plaza or certain names of the time. Right. And also, it was your use of props and elements in your presentation or performance, if you want to call it performance, or your work that was the beginning of potentially using more multimedia ways of approaching dance and movement. Yeah, in a sense, you know, what we are claiming is we don't know what, but we still want to present ourselves. Hardly called choreography, yet you are right, we are already using slide projector, we were using the music of doors. <laughs> and, you know, we're just creating this time that we occupy. And then we left with a motorbike. We came with a motorbike, we did everything we possibly wanted to do, and then left with a motorbike. So that was our first concert. <laughs> I love I love everything about that echo. It sounds incredible. <laughs> no, it's a use that you know had so much energy. Yes. We wanted to be politically effective to yes. change the world, and that was not quite possible. We kind of went into the deadlock. Yes. And then we that still energy was with us, even though we are not most revolutionary party at that point. So I think that this desire to create a different time, different place for people to, to, to share together, I think it's been there from the day one. Yes, yes, absolutely. I feel we could spend so much time in your world, especially because it was 40 years together as a cohort with Coma. Because I don't have both of you together and because our podcast series right now is focusing on female (laughs) I really want to, if we can kind of just, you know, skip ahead some 40 years. Let's do that together. So I was really interested to learn recently that the the Walker Art Center, which I love in Minneapolis, published a comprehensive monograph of your works, Eka and Coma. Time is not even, space is not empty. Mm -hmm. It's an retrospective project, which included these new performance works, restaging of old works, media works, installations, museum exhibitions, film showings, panels, and lectures. What was it like for you, Eka, to look back on your work together and did looking back in any way and form what you chose to do as an independent artist moving forward? Right, so the retrospective was of the work of Ek and Koma. Yes. And when it was suggested by our good friend, Sam Mira, so he had died three years ago, but at the time when he came to talk to me about this idea, was the, the, not the people who are dead, but the performing artist who are in the middle of creating, he wanted to make a retrospective because unlike writers or cinematographers, filmmakers or painters who all have retrospective often, mm-hmm. after certain years of creating work, performing artists are only often judged by what you see in front of it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you go to see the performance in theater A of the work performing artist B, mm-hmm. that's what you see. Mm-hmm. But you don't have much knowledge of what this artist B had created five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's hard to have that sense of trajectory. Right. So he wanted to create that opportunity because he realized many people 
who are young don't have an opportunity the way he saw us perform 25 years ago. So it's in his memory. So how could we provide that sense of we existed before right in front of your, being right in front of the audience's eye, right? right. So I was kind of not, not thrilled by the idea because I was so interested in just creating a time and place now or next month. I wasn't interested in going back. Mm-hmm. But there's something about his saying, I mean, you know, we are a very small company, right? It's just two people. Yes. So there's a way that may be possible because retrospective was not only looking back, it was also including a new commission. It was including to do the exhibition, installations, book. All of that is new to me. So there's aspect of new, which is what I was interested in. How do I create a book? How do I create an installation? Stand out, it means looking back many of the videos, looking back many of the pieces we have made. Um, and Kuma wasn't as interested in doing it. He said, okay, I could do this thing. <laughs> so like here I, I find myself, after committing myself, committing ourselves, looking, looking all the things that we have done. And I was kind of surprised. I sort of enjoyed seeing myself 20 years ago, 25 years ago, mm-hmm. because there is that dancer self. You know, in, in my 30s, I was a very different kind of dancer. Right. Than, you know, I, I'm 50-something. And that knowing all the things that I would have never looked, but looking it back had a profound way of looking what I want to do next. Mm-hmm. And I think I came up with an idea of, oh, I want to do something without coma. Mm-hmm. And for coma too, in a way, we had that such a solid, I think we probably spend more time <laughs> than any normal, you know, uh, uh, partner or spouse <laughs> to spend, right? So I think it was a kind of like great awakening of, oh, now we have done this much of the pieces together. Especially after retrospective project, we had the MoMA, one week full time show. And I, I was afraid working on a retrospective, working on a new piece of Naked, which is the piece we performed every day, all hours in a museum in Nawoka. And then coming back to New York, having done big show in outdoor show at the Lincoln Center in that reflection pool, also yeah. doing the MoMA show and also doing the uh, installation exhibition in, in New York Public Library, all that within two years. Wow. And then reviving our 1976 work and also performing that, it's a lot of work and coma. So yeah. I think we both were kind of ready to leave it behind. So even though it was not an objective of the retrospective, it somehow made us feel kind of complete in a way that we were ready to do a new thing. So for me, it was, and for Koma too, it was a way that can we test each of us alone? I was just loving the fact I make a decision myself. (laughs) (laughs) And it's so interesting, Eko, because you both came to that realization, which is probably, even just from a business perspective, probably a pretty harmonious way to move forward had it been just one of you and not both of you that probably would have been fairly tricky yeah and also kuma was having a a series of injuries around that time Mm -hmm. so even as we are completing our retrospective project tour it has been very hard for him so he had to do a number of surgeries when you have ongoing pain and with ongoing engagement it's hard to take care of the body too so he needed a break yeah anyway and I didn't need a break. I just needed a new thing to do. Yes, I love that. It's really interesting to think about how time and space kind of, as you discussed the retrospective and also that you were simultaneously making work and performing work with MoMA, that kind of time and space sort of came together and then your solo project began. 
And as I understand it, your solo, your first solo project began with a 12-hour performance in Philadelphia. I know. It sounds so ambitious, right? Oma came to all of it and, you know, to support me. And he goes like, Echo, you are not very modest. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, your first solo is 12-hour long. <laughs> <laughs> and I realized, oh, yeah, you can kind of see that way. My first project was to leave theater because most of Eikan Kuma's work, I would say 70% of Eikan Kuma's work had been in theater. And we're both kind of thinking, spend so much time being in theater. But of course, being performing in a theater are kind of limited to the kind of audience you encounter. Of course. You know, you are in the, you know, Joyce cities, you are in the Palms cities, you are in a, any other big universities, art cities, presentation cities. And not that I have a problem with those audience, but it is still a limited part of the society. <laughs> so I was interested in finding myself in a place that I don't use theatrical help. Mm-hmm. Probably I was more scared to be alone on stage with theatrical help because then you have to come up with the beginning and the middle and the end yourself. Uh-huh. Whereas by putting me into the site work, it means especially when you do the durational work, the usually understanding is people are not coming to see beginning and middle and the end. People are coming to see the durational work that they can come and go. And I was interested in training myself as a performer, retrain myself as a soloist. So rather than creating this story or drama, I wanted to be the one that, oh, I can go out for coffee. Oh, I can come back. She's still there. I can go out to get a lunch. Oh, she's still there. I'm going home because she's still there. But I can imagine she's still there. Yes. That kind of, you know, that I did enjoy when Commander I did all those durational work. You know, there are two pieces, big pieces we did. Each one was one month long. And we were there at every time of the opening, uh, the museum opening. So that's like 150 hours or so of performing, right? right? And that sense of, you know, usually with a dancer, choreographer, we have like 45 minutes piece or one hour piece with the beginning and the middle and the end. It's another to be a part of the cultural landscape. Right. Where I like the idea of even after people go home, we are still there. So there's a duality of audience being home and we are still in that place. The next week I come back. In terms of the station, I didn't do the 12 hours all at once. I did it four Fridays, three hours each. So there's a way of people to think, even though they don't come back next week. Yes. They know, oh, Echo is still doing that this week. That is what I liked. Echo, did you notice something about the audience being the street? as these viewers come and because you were talking about sort of the difference between being on stage and potentially pressure, like the pressure to have a a conclusion or a beginning to work, you know, a a climax to the work. Did you find that the passerbys or the audience or whatever word you want to call it, the viewers of the work informing any decisions you were making along the way, or had you sort of decided beforehand what this 12-hour work was going to be? Well, it, it's both. So I would always score myself close to the choreography, but not really. Choreography implies much more movement decisions. I do that to the degree, but I score it in a way, okay, I will enter to this place from here. I will exit. Within that three hours, where I would cover in terms of space, right? Mm-hmm. And what what could potentially could happen in that three hour, right? Right. So I would think about those things. And one thing that you had asked me now is what I learned is yeah, there are passersby, but also there are people who planned to be there because it was advertised, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And the combination of there's an intentional audience who came to watch me, mm. that 
those people actually attract more passers-by to stop by. Mm-hmm. Because if I'm alone, such as a dress rehearsal time, I was alone in a spacing room. People are more reluctant to really watch because it's a little too odd. They don't know what to do with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if there is an audience, you know, it doesn't have to be a lot, but there are the people who are actually watching. Then there's a kind of sense of permission. Oh, this was a planned event. What's happening is not one crazy person completely lost in her mind. <laughs> this was a this was an intentional act. Sure. Right? Sure. It makes it easier for people to join and then of course also leave too. So they are not stuck with me. Sometimes you are walking in the street and you see like homeless people. Yes. And you know, you you are full of empathy, but you're you are worried to to put the gates together. You're not prepared to what could happen after. Absolutely. Right? So you are like trying to find out if there's any way to help or like maybe it's beyond your help. It's a very complicated feeling when you see the people who are in need of some kind of help. But when it is staged as a performance, the idea is, oh, it is a performance. So therefore, She's not coming to get you. She's not going to scream at you, even though I sometimes do scream in a performance, but it, it is in the context of the performance. But I do still present kind of miserable looking, strange. I'm not a young dancer. I'm not a technically showing dancer. So there's an oddness in my performance. So the having some audience really helps to support it. Did you think about that a forethought or was that did that come to you in process in realization? It totally came in a process because yeah. I was almost a shock in a first dress rehearsal. I thought hundreds of people would be surrounding me. No, they didn't. Right. So the my oddness alone doesn't give people a permission to stop by. That makes so sense. I needed a frame. Right? Yeah. Yes, of course. So like all of a sudden, you know, your children's drawing and you have like 15 drawings. And, and if you have that on the table and all over the house, people are not really looking at it. You choose one, you put it in a frame, you put it in a bathroom or whatever, or even just uh, in a refrigerator, then your friend might be looking, mm-hmm. right? Because it's an invitation to look. Yes. Right. And I felt like that invitation is helpful. I agree with that. And and because I think there's also a challenge with people's entry points into dance anyway, especially, I don't know how it is in Japan, but, and I can speak for what I know to be in the United States, there's a um, potentially a hard time watching other bodies moving in space. We have a, a little bit of a tricky time with that. And so I think exactly. it makes sense to offer that entry point in. Right. And still, you know, we are not making any clarification, right? Right. But the sense of invitation is there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And did you notice people come back? I, I would imagine you're so deep into your performance. Did you have moments where you would see a viewer return? Yes, yes. in fact. You know, because I'm no different in, in a right of any special writing to me. Mm-hmm. Meaning I can see everyone as much as they can see me. Right. But sometimes I find like my friend, long time I haven't seen, I smile. I don't smile casually, but smile comes up to my my mouth. Mm-hmm. Like I will try to be not to be too casual, but I to I meet. And that's a beautiful moment. I go like in my mind, oh thank you for coming. Mm-hmm. When I sing you, I don't say it, but I think the other person knows mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it's in my it's my in my in my mind. Your mind, yes, yeah. absolutely. And then people, you know, like in, in case of Philadelphia, people came back. But there are hardcore people who came back every time. Those are, they, they decided to come back every time. Right. And they think that those are personal decisions. You know, they know me, they wanted to support me. Or some people, the other student came to draw me as mm-hmm. I was performing because it gave them a lot of time to draw. 12 hours, that's a good 12 hours, time right. to focus, yep. Yeah. So, so as you're discussing this solo project, 
I do, I feel it's important to kind of circle back on another piece of your work, kind of going back again to your work with Eco and Coma, if you don't mind me just turning one more time to that before we push forward into your complete solo piece, which is so, I'm so excited to dig in with you about. So with your working partnership with Coma and your independent work, you've received numerous awards, (laughs) including a MacArthur Fellowship, two Guggenheim Fellowships, and now as a solo presenter, a Bessie Special Citation Art Matters Fellowship and Anonymous was a woman award. And those only kind of name a few, honestly, of of quite a prolific, impressive series of professional accomplishments. (laughs) Did these awards change the course of your work or not? Sometimes fellowships have um, kind of a ring to them in terms of the the dutifulness or the, the angle of the artist. Did receiving these change how you viewed your work or made your work or, or, or not? In a sense, it did. One is, of course, the sense of, because many of those hours you don't apply. Yes. You know, it comes to you as a gift as, yes. and somebody selected. Right. So this sense of, oh, my God. And always, always, you know, always comes as a surprise. So it's not a project grant, right? Project grant, I write. And I'm very selective when I apply. I don't want to apply to everything. So when you receive it, it's not a surprise because you kind of geared to get the project. So, you know, I mean, you work hard to this. But yeah. those most of the surprising grant is the sense of, oh, somebody has been watching. Mm. <laughs> right? I mean, I know we have audience, but we just don't know. It's like another way of... Somebody has, because nothing is those comes as one piece. It, it's usually is more of the trajectory. So that sense of somebody has been watching, that's a very big sense of being supported, right? Right, of course. The grant has a different, right? You know, Makasa, for example, is such a big name. It comes entirely surprised. Plus, you know, it's a five years of basic income being supported. And so it has a strange effect also, right? After five years passed, it all of a sudden you are fearful not to have a health insurance because you already had it for five years. Mm-hmm. So it kind of changes you. But that's not the most majority thing. For the Makasa, when we got the paperwork came, the letter came, it said, for your contribution to the humanity. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what? <laughs> I've never strived to contribute to the humanity. We don't, you know, we just, we're such a small people, right? Kind of like sniffing around. And we never had a big commitment to the field. <laughs> we're still like trying and kind of, you know, feeling it out. We've always soft and talked about what's next. Yeah. That includes, we, we should be not doing dance, we should be doing something else. So there was a lot of sense of we were just processing ourselves. Yes. But when something of that big words come to you, there's a sense of, oh, mm. somebody's looking at us differently. When you receive it, you're kind of astounded by the wording. At least I was. It's like, then other like Duke Foundation Performing Arts uh, 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 Fellowship, that came to both of us. And that was another kind of surprise. Mm. So why? Because usually we're used to like two as well, two for one. <laughs> so like we can joke about the Macassar. But this came as each of us. And that really was almost like a, a bet. A bet. Someone had betted us. You will work perhaps separately. Even together you have each individual mind. Mm-hmm. And some of those awards is not an award for the past work. Yes, of course, past work has to attract the jury's, you know, deciding, but it is the jury's commitment to the future of right. your possibility. So that's like a really, really good, like really pat on your back to go on, right? So those are mental, the money is one thing, and the money is a big thing, I have to say, in my field, money is a big thing. Nobody had a spare money. Um, but also along with that is this pat on the back mm-hmm. that would actually make me think more boldly, mm-hmm. not to please those people, 
but you learn from your experience of oh somebody somebody is looking what you really wanted to do mm. over the trajectory, not just a piece. Right. We're not only projecting and producing a piece. We are also projecting the way as a working artist. How do we live? How do we think? How do we speak? How do we network? All those things are part of our working. It's one thing to receive these and another to be moved to thinking about their impact, which I so love about how you've considered your responsiveness to them and It brings up something for me as you say them about just feedback for those who do perform. And oftentimes after people leave the audiences, you don't, you don't often hear much then, oh, that was great. Or I didn't understand this or whatever, but (laughs) to get, to get a greater recognition of um, the space that you're holding as the words that you use. It's interesting to think how that does give you a safe place to push it further or bigger yeah. or to, yeah. to think beyond even where you were thinking before. I love that. Mm-hmm. So the audience then to rea- we realize is not only the audience in front of us. Yes. There are larger audience. We become each other's audience in a way how the artist lives will be curated by themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's just a wonderful way of you know, seeing the thoughts that is the bottom of the work that, that each other as, as friends or the colleagues are creating. I love the audience in front of me, but something beyond to think about, beyond the theatre wall, beyond my immediate people that I'm addressing. That's a very important notion to learn. Of course, and and <laughs> to to rename what you named before the, with the MacArthur is that these words like contribution to humanity. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's a pretty big um, yeah. It's a pretty big thing to feel um, yeah. and and understand, and potentially it puts more emphasis on the choices that you do make, and yeah. not like you weren't thoughtful about them before, but it even puts more of a kind of a microscopic view of uh, how you think and how you act. So I'm really excited to dig into this specific project with you, Mm. which is a collaboration you began in 2014, photographer William Johnston, where you visited post-nuclear Fukushima several Mm -hmm. times to create this photo exhibit, A Body Mm -hmm. in Fukushima. Echo, can you can you tell us about this project? So for those listeners who may not remember or who may not remember exactly, so 20, oh, sorry, 2011, uh, there was an uh, explosion and, and uh, meltdowns of Fukushima nuclear reactors. So the three, three nuclear uh, uh, meltdowns, which is huge, Yes. And so much people had to be evacuated. This happened on top of the tsunami, the earthquake and tsunami that already had lots of casualties. But as, as a nuclear accident, this was the second big in the history after Chernobyl. So this was a huge thing. A nuclear plant is not only in Japan, it's in, in many parts of the world. Yes. And every nuclear plant has this danger. Mm-hmm. No machinery we make or we buy, we don't ever assume this will be completely full safe. Mm-hmm. So it's a matter of like when and how, or can we keep it taming? We live on a dangerous place because we have created so many things that our lives are dependent on. Mm-hmm. So when Fukushima this happened, I was shocked, not as if like, oh my God, you know, the, the earth has fallen. No, oh my God, what I thought would happen actually happened. Mm. So the shock is a little different kind of a shock. The shock realize, make you realize certain laziness, certain self-denial. You know, we all have a tendency to deny certain things that it's too difficult to think about. And nuclear things is definitely among many people. We know it's important. We know it's dangerous. 
but what do I do? Mm-hmm. So this thing had really resulted in this big scale. And so from the, from the day that had happened, I was in a, in a shock, in a shock that told me there has to be something different in my life that I have to recognize this has indeed happened. So part of that is my teaching, because I've already been teaching about atomic bombing as a relationship to the movement and historical recognition. So that's that already radiation matter. So that nuclear plants is like another radiation matter. So it's already connected. So I felt obligated to myself to go to see the place because I've always felt there are certain things you can learn by being there or by going there, you kind of commit you commit more to the subject, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, many people know about the Holocaust, but going to the Holocaust site, going to the Auschwitz and different camp site, gives you the whole different relationship. Mm-hmm. If not completely different, but, you know, the, especially for those who are not in a direct uh, a survivor of this, it's it, it just distance of the sense is changed. So as a choreographer, it always has been important to myself, how do I change the sense of choreography, the distance? Mm-hmm. So I went to Fukushima alone, but you know, I was this is very, was a very still busy time, you know, it was right in the middle of our retrospective. So I could only go there as a as a citizen and not to make anything out of it. Mm-hmm. But then by the time 2014, I already thought about doing my solo project because Mama project was 2013, that respective ended 2012. So all that my busiest time of work and coma is about to end. And I was looking for the ways how my solo project needed some basic basic concerns, not, not something that I would be uh, uh, making a political statement about, but basic concerns that I can put my body Mm. alongside with. Mm-hmm. And so I realized, let me go to Fukushima. But this time I didn't go along. I had asked my photographer friend to come with me so that we'll be recording what I may be doing there, even though I had absolutely no idea how and what I would be. I had a slight idea about me dancing, my body being there in this destroyed landscape. We did not know, we ended up, we did not know then, we ended up going back there five times together. Mm. And uh, the book was just published, you know. Uh, uh, I have created many different versions of the videos using his photographs because we shot, each time we shot something like three to 5,000 photos. So by now we got tons of photos. So sometimes we had uh, exhibitions, we had installations, I also performed with installations or exhibitions. I also created that many different kinds of video that I project in the museums and the galleries. And I ended up performing with that as well. So it's a huge project, had many different facets of presentation. And I, this spring, I performed, projected in many parts of Tokyo, 10th year. This year is 10th year of Fukushima happening. And I also had a theater performance with that projection of the whole, whole big uh, <laughs> scheme of the things I have done, except it's such a small part of what had really happened. Eiko, every part of this project is stunning. I, I had the chance to go back to your website and again and again and um, buy the book and... I, I can't imagine for you what it must have been like to be physically there, because even in the digital space, it is um, hard to kind of feel those moments with you, both as a performing artist myself, but just as a, as a viewer, you can only imagine how it must have felt for you to be physically there in the space. But I think also the work relays that so well so it's sort of this funny paradoxical thing where it's like you bring out 
that feeling <laughs> of being there. And the, the, the review of the book and, and then a comment you made, which I found to be so stunning. This is a book of wailing and remorse. It is a book about the body, the body of a performer, an immigrant artist from Japan, the body of a historian who is also a photographer, and a body of irradiated land. Going to Fukushima is my choreography. Being there has changed what it is for me to dance. Eiko, this is saying so much to change what it means for you to dance. Can you explain what changed? Well, um, so I, you know, from age 20, very young, I became a performer, but not really a committed performer, but I was, I would commit to a performance, not for five years, 10 years career. But we, I did enjoy performing and putting my body in front of the audience. There's something so special about sharing time and place, and we are actually being together, human. That, that, so for me, the, the dancing or moving my body is very strongly related to the fact that my audience is in front of me, even three people, or 20 people, or 800 people. But in Fukushima, there's no audience. And I would only go for myself. I would not bring a collaborator except this historian who, who was completely committed to teach the nuclear matter. So for him, he had just as big reasons to be there. And you know, he's my age. So we are not young people. And in the young bodies, uh, radiation is more harmful. Mm. Potentially, okay? Not to say it's not harmful to us, but you know, our DNA split is much slower. And also, yeah, 20 years later, I may have slightly raised my portion of being a cancer, having a cancer, but I would have gotten cancer anyway. It's kind of hard to really divide. And we've been very careful not to overdose ourselves in terms of the, the duration of the time we were there. Mm-hmm. However, the way that I was there is alone, but I was not alone because I had a camera. But the camera is, camera is capturing me being alone because the camera cannot be in a frame. So this is complicated. I, I do have a camera. I do have a friend who is deciding and shooting. And through that camera, I knew that we, some of the result. I did not know how. But of course, I had a vague idea of some of the photographs will be shown. Mm. So eventually, it will reach to somebody. Mm. But not, I'm performing right now in front of other people. So this is a whole different way of performing. And I had to trust in performing, even in front of the camera. You know, like I think more. I think about the place. At the same time, I don't want my perspiration holes to open too much because we feel the danger. Yes. When you feel the danger, your body is a little bit more closed up. So I'm not like completely breathing freely. I was feeling pretty closed up. Yes. And half the time, you know, I may, I may have been even crying. Mm. So the shock of being there and the shock of, I mean, this is my home country too, right? Even though I'm not from Fukushima, you know, living in New York, whole Japan is like connected to Fukushima much more closely, especially Tokyo where I grew up. And some of the countryside I grew up was close to Fukushima. So being there and really telling myself, because you can't smell, you can't see radiation. So it's a knowledge. Mm-hmm. Knowledge that I know there's a more radiation here than other places, right? So that really changed my relationship to the dancing body because I couldn't encourage to myself fully open up, having a deep breath in and out. No, my body was refusing that. My body was closing up. But that's reality, right? Mm -hmm. And that sense of reality, if I'm like completely closed up, do I still remember? Do I still move my body? And then as I go further away or come closer to the, to the 
you know, the plants, the reactors. Uh, of course, I couldn't really be too close. Obviously, that's not allowed. Uh, but within Nafukushima area, I could also feel there are so many differences. It's, Fukushima sounds like one place. No, it's not. It's a prefecture name. So there are so many different places within Fukushima, which has a different heart, differently wounded, differently affected by radiation, right? Mm-hmm. And by its own history. So I'm being there, I'm being a body worker, not immediately having an audience, but, but have to trust myself. I will eventually carry what I'm doing here to the people how many thousand miles away? And how do I do that? I didn't quite know how to do it yet. So really all that aspect of the project kind of came afterwards. It's it's really interesting that in um, one of the reviews of your book by a Pulitzer Prize winning author, Forrest Gander, he reminds us of a quote from Akira Kurosawa, Japanese um, artist who said, to be an artist means to never look away. Hmm. Yeah. me in terms of your ability to be in that space and remind us of what it means to turn towards these catastrophes and towards these issues like you were saying earlier to to be in that space and to not look away well it's like you know we tend to look away it's only human so by going there it's kind of harder to look away when you are <laughs> So I think this is my choreography, right? This is my uh, score. Yes. I decide to go and I go. Once mm-hmm. I'm there, it's hard to look away. And mm-hmm. also it's hard to forget because you decided to come. Right. So you owe yourself to remember, but you owe to what you are learning there. Mm-hmm. And, and too, I think it brings us in with you if we can't be there or decide not to be there it does invite us in on the outside to be there in a different kind of way than we would otherwise. So there's power in the presence of you acknowledging that, but also potentially acknowledging that for others. Yes, and also I do acknowledge completely, I'm not from Fukushima. In a way, I wasn't as affected by the people who had to flee, who has to lose their homes. So my positionality to Fukushima is very clearly, I'm a visitor to Fukushima. Mm-hmm. But still visit gives you a visiting experience. If not, I'm, the, not, I'm not talking about this as a people from Fukushima would be talking. I'm talking as a visitor. Right. But visiting could be an experience that I could also create and develop and share with people. And potentially... I don't know about this, but I wonder if it might be harder for someone who's been directly influenced to even return. Different community has a different uh, level of the difficulty right now. Of course, if you are talking to 75 years old, who would rather be there because it's their home mm-hmm. versus like 35 years old with like three years old child, it's right. different. Right. right. Of course. In, in addition to, to your artistic work, I'd like to kind of delve into a little bit about, and it connects to the, the work at um, Body in Fukushima, which I, I hope our listeners will, will turn towards your website, which we will be happy to publish the link next to the podcast, but to, to take a look at your f- photographs and film and, and to read your book, um, which actually just came out. It's so exciting. <laughs> and, <laughs> And and also, in addition to your artistic work, I think it's important to share that you you act as a teaching artist in various yeah. academic institutions, Wesleyan University, NYU, yes. and Colorado College. Yes. During the 2017-2018 academic year, your work as a fellow in Wesleyan University's College of the Environment, which I think is so interesting, focused on the theme of disruptions to disasters a lens on the human environment relationship. <laughs> I, I've heard a lot about dance entering the policy landscape, entering the future of technology landscape. From your perspective and your experience and also teaching, how might dance or movement inform the way we think about 
our relationship, our human relationship to the environment. Well, that's exactly how I, I address as a question in my course description. How does becoming a mover change you know, your own relationship to the political, environmental, you know, humanistic matters? And again, I don't think I should formulate that myself. The answer will be very individually different. But me, I do believe in this interdisciplinary way of teaching because I teach as a working artist. I did study uh, enough to be able to teach atomic bomb literature, for which I have a, a, a master's. I did a master's thesis, so I have an MA on. But the way I teach is not so much as only from that lens. I do use that field because I'm committed to that field. But more, we are really using the time within the class time, which is usually three hours long, no less, no break. Like people have to run to the bathroom, come back quickly. <laughs> the three hours are often very organically continue from the body work to the discussion, tons of homework. I do believe reading and writing. This is something I offer because I have studied a particular area. So I could bring the kind of reading and writing people do not otherwise get to, which is an exciting part. Mm-hmm. And I have this one friend of mine who is a really amazingly strong uh, writer who died. So I'm carrying her work and it's almost always it really shake my student mind. And it's so beautiful for me as an artist, seeing other artists can over many different miles of different you know, distances and uh, age, the artwork can really shake people's mind. Mm-hmm. And it's very affirmative way because when you are moved by an artwork, you also like yourself. When something, something you see, you read, you chew, you understand, or you feel you understand something, if you're not completely, you are not disliking yourself, right? So right. when you feel you honor as an artist, you are also honoring yourself who feels a connection. Right. So it's, it's a wonderful way to, to nurture, you know, because it is a depressing world we live in. Yep. There's no question about it. Yeah. And we don't want to look away always. Once in a while, we do have to look away in order to keep ourselves survive this. At the same time, we don't want to continuously look away because it comes back to haunt us. Yeah. So how do we keep us engaged? And this is where art pieces are very strong because you see another humanity doing this on their own way. And I think the movement in my class works as sort of a sensitivity training. When you work with other people, there's no right answer to do this particular movement. I give the score and each individual would do somewhat differently. And by learning each other's experience, you are expanding the understanding of humanity and other people's kinesthetic as well. So it's not only a great person, but also what is a kinesthetic relationship happens among different people, different size, different culture, different language. And how can we inch closer or change the sense of distance without just hitting someone? Mm-hmm. So this is where I like, it's a long process of teaching and I believe in it, I care about it. There is no other pleasure so strong opening people's mind. And I see the inside of the mind. So all my students write at every end of the class to before the next class, humongous language of the journals. So I conduct my course, not giving the studio art practice, but also myself committing to read every line of the student journals. And I give tons of homework. So it's a very intense work process. Mm-hmm. And I, I have seen various ways how it, it flourishes. You know, not all the time everybody is the same way. Some people remember it much later, right? But I do have a long communication with many of my students. Many of them became my collaborators. Many of them became my advisors. <laughs> and as an immigrant myself, this is also like creating a community, mm. you know, which, which goes over different generations. 
and, and I'm constantly learning how hard it is, but how, how potential it is to communicate. That's so true. It's, I, I think there's so much in what you just said in terms of the intergenerational relationship, communication, both to ourselves and to each other and to our, the world around us and how they're so inter- inextricably linked. And sometimes we forget that. <laughs> Do you, you mentioned, you know, it's interesting to, to think about this quote, to be an artist and never to look away, but you did mention the importance in looking away sometimes. <laughs> and and exactly. where does that live? I mean, where do we as artists, when can we put our worries down or where do we find those moments? I, I really think it all comes to the each other's sense of balance, mm-hmm. right? We can't push ourselves beyond we cannot push. Yes. So I call this, in my teaching, I always go towards self-curation. So you have to curate your own life, right? Mm-hmm. But self-curation also is co-curation, meaning you are constantly choosing to whom you are communicating mm-hmm. or to from, from whom you are learning. Yes. So, you know, you choose your own teacher, you choose when to leave that teacher, and I'm always saying as soon as possible, <laughs> you don't hang around too long with some great master. Uh-huh. And, you know, but literally, you know, really take what you can take and then nourish it yourself. Because, I mean, nobody cares about yourself other than yourself. So you have to, you have to honor yourself. So to the point where you can't really punish yourself completely because then you can't bounce back. Yes. So it's really your sense of balance because when you get too many good prizes or you get too many sweet friends, Inside of you, tell start to tell you this is this is not this is too lukewarm. This is too beautiful. Yes, and I think that one can only tell yourself. Nobody can tell that to that person. Yes, because everybody's sense of balance is different. Right, and to me, sense of balance also changes as you age or as you get to know other people's sense of balance. So it always gets shaken. Yeah. And I love the time when I'm completely shaken off out of my own balance and then barely holding myself. I think being in Fukushima was that kind of experience. Right. That makes sense. And and the the idea of these imbalances refining us potentially as hum, human beings and able to not get too comfortable, as they say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. So, Eiko, of course, this is potentially mostly just my curiosity, but I think a lot of people who will listen to this will be moved to ask the same question, which is, I'm, I'm so curious about what comes next for you. Okay, so I am also projecting, you know, like I'm still thinking back for the performance I did in Graveyards in September. Mm. So we... Me and my photographer, same photographer, collaborator who went to Fukushima, Bill Johnston. We are we have gone back to the same cemetery and did a series of photo sessions. So last week, I was there in the middle of the night, completely darkness of the humongous cemetery. <laughs> Five hundred eighty thousand uh, permanent residents all day. Uh, so I was trying to be there in the middle of the night. So that series as a photographic exploration will continue to have some kind of a shape. Mm-hmm. So that's one. Number two, I am now talking with people in Chicago and I will be visiting Chicago the first week of August, which is a week of Hiroshima Nagasaki atomic bomb. And I'm going to perform site-specific work with, you know, at the University of Chicago where... Um, um, the, the first nuclear chain reactions had completed. So that was a milestone, both scientifically and engineering-wise, but it's not a milestone that everybody uh, celebrate in the same way. Yeah. In fact, it was, a, it was a part of the Manhattan Project, which of course resulted with atomic bombing. So I'm going to be there creating the work. Wow. I'm also going to spend part of the August to September in Wyoming, which is the first time I ever go to that state because I'm usually go to the place where I'm invited to perform. So this will be a whole new way of knowing the landscape of America. 
and I'm working there with another collaborator, a video, a, a wonderful filmmaker. I come back in September and I'm creating the piece now. I'm doing the monologue on 9-11, on 20th year anniversary. So this will be a lot of talking, but I hope to do this in a quiet voice. And we hope to do this in a sunrise and sunset time. Mm. So it's not a big show. It's not a big, uh, you know, something standing up uh, next to the big ceremony, which is bound to happen that day. This is going to be a very small person talking in a small voice, her own experience Mm. of not only 9-11, but but relating stories before and after. And that's huge for me. I am scared to do this. I'm trying to train myself to do it. So those are immediate things that's coming up. You are a very brave pioneer, Eko. <laughs> and one more, one more thing I have to tell you is like, this is already three years, four years in making is a, my huge duet project. So if you go to my web, there's a subset called duet project. And I performed, created a duet with 24 artists so far. So I don't know what to do with this because the project keeps growing. And I've been working with amazing range of the people. Four people out of the 24 people that I have worked with are dead people. Then the rest is living people. And I have a feeling this will continue. The way how I open up and then the other person opens up and post how two people can encounter and can learn, can learn from each other in a, taking a various forms that will emerge yes. specific to these two people. So that, that project is ongoing. It all, I mean, it will be so incredible to follow these continuations. And um, I think... I think it's so apropos for your life and your artist's work to think about the woman who never looks away. I mean, for you to continue to look at these whew, things that I think are, for many of us, what we try not to think about um, is really a beautiful, um, it's just a really beautiful thing for you to embrace um, the beauty and the heartbreak of both and find your voice and help us find our voice within them. So I'm really looking forward to following these works as they continue. And um, I think it's, I think your website, tell me if this is wrong, Eiko, E-I-K-O-O-T-A-K-E dot org. It's my org. Dot org. Yes, perfect. So that is where our listeners can find your work, um, your retrospectives, your um, your your current work and your future plans as well, your schedules and, and follow you. So Eko, I I feel I have so many more questions for you. Our time is drawing here to a close, but I cannot thank you enough again for joining me today. It's honestly my absolute pleasure and honor to have the chance to talk with you and really looking forward to continuing to follow what you do and and sharing your life work with all of us. Well, thank you for watching. Thank you for talking to me and let's continue our friendship to each other. Perfect. Thank you very much. Museum of Dance is a nonprofit organization. We work to preserve and contextualize the universal art of dance for the greater public through innovative exhibitions, diverse educational programs, and accessible archival collections. Explore what moves you at museumdance.org. You can sign up here for emails, like us on Facebook, or follow us on Instagram.